Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we'll hear from author David Gran, who writes nonfiction that reads with the urgency of a thriller or mystery. He is obsessed with obsession and human behavior at the extreme. From the Amazonian jungle to the expansive interior of Antarctica, from a reign of terror in a close-knit community to a group of men trapped on a desolate island. Grand's literary journalism combines archival research with in-person interviews and on-the-ground investigation, even when the ground is located on an uninhabited island in the middle of some of the most dangerous seas at the edge of the world. That's the setting for much of the action of his new book, The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, murder, and mutiny. An 18th century sea adventure might sound like the most dad book of dad books. Dads will love it. I loved it. You'll love it. You'll learn a lot about scurvy. But it's also, crucially, about truth and who is believed. Which means that The Wager is a story about stories. The ones that we tell ourselves and the storytelling that it takes to pursue an empire. So maybe David Grant isn't exactly obsessed with obsession, as reviews and intros just like this like to declare. He's obsessed with stories and how they are told. Grant has said, Stories and narratives are always the way I try to make sense of the world. I think that's why we all tell stories. I think it's interesting how reality can blend into myth and fiction, and how we tell these stories can shape us as people and shape us as nations. Those themes reverberate in his other work, including as a New Yorker staff writer and in the National Book Award finalist and bestseller, Killers of the Flower Moon, which was recently made into an Oscar-nominated film of the same name. In fact, Grant has been called The Man Hollywood Can't Stop Reading. His first book and two of his New Yorker stories have also been adapted, with at least two more of his projects in the works. New York Magazine declared Gran one of the preeminent adventure and true crime writers working today, and he was named the inaugural Barnes & Noble Author of the Year in 2023. Like many people, I personally will read anything he writes, and I'm so excited we have a chance to share his talk with you. Here's David Gran. Now, I want to talk to you uh, today a little bit about the kind of the the stories, but also the stories behind the stories to hopefully illuminate a bit about the challenges of uncovering the truth, but also the surprising power of it. And I wanted to begin with a turning point early in my career. Um, This was back in 2003 when I had recently been hired uh, at the New Yorker magazine. Um, And it was a dream job for me, but I was already behind on my contract to produce a certain number of pieces, and I suddenly feared I was going to lose my job. And so I was frantically looking around, calling everybody I knew for a story idea, 
And I called a friend who said to me half-jokingly, well, why don't you write about the giant squid? And at that point, my only image of a giant squid was from 20,000 leagues under the sea. And I thought of it as, this, as just basically a mythic creature. But after I got off the phone, uh, I looked it up, and sure enough, the giant squid was not only real, it was the largest invertebrate on Earth, with tentacles sometimes as long as a school bus and eyes the size of a human head. But back then, when I was writing, no scientists had ever uh, documented one alive. Um, they knew they existed only because uh, dead carcasses had sometimes been find, found floating on the surface of the water, uh, some measuring as long as 60 feet when you stretch their tentacles. And at first I thought, well, that's interesting, but there's nothing to see. How could I tell that story? I can't see anything. I could never find it. But I did a little bit more research, and lo and behold, it turns out that there were squid hunters who had devoted their whole lives, like Ahab, to trying to be the first to capture the first giant squid. And they had come up with all these crazy schemes. They would uh, go down in cages with cameras, and they would take cameras and harpoon them to whales, hoping that whales might lead them under the sea to the giant squid, um, all to no avail. And eventually I tracked down perhaps the most obsessive giant squid hunter of all. It was a man named Steve O'Shea who lived in New Zealand, and he had come up with a rather novel idea, uh, and that was rather than try to be the first to capture a big giant squid, the big calamari, he wanted to try to capture a baby about the size of a cricket and then grow it in captivity. Now, the, the plan, as kooky as it sounds, had a certain kind of mad genius to it because at least in theory, during spawning season, as with many creatures, there'd be lots of babies. Most won't survive, but there'd be lots of babies and they'd be easier to catch. And I called up O'Shea uh, on the phone and he said, Oh, come on down, mate. Uh, I'm about to head out on an expedition, and we'll make history. When I went to my editors at The New Yorker, <laughs> I may have committed that sin that is sometimes tempting, um, which is I may have committed the sin of overselling a story. And I assured them, even in those slightly more flush times for journalism, that it made sense to send me to New Zealand across the globe because we were gonna be the first to document the giant squid, and I promised them I'd bring them back a photograph. And so they gave me their blessing, and off I went to New Zealand. But the moment I arrived, the ominous signs began. Now, I had imagined we'd be going out in some great Jacques Cousteau-like vessel, yet it turned out O'Shea had bankrupted himself over the years looking for the giant squid, and all he could afford was a 16-foot skiff. And it turned out his only crew was a graduate student who got seasick, and your courageous writer, myself. He then uh, turned to me, and he said, mate, I should warn you, there's a wee bit of a cyclone coming our way. He was not exaggerating. There was a cyclone coming our way. The country had declared a national emergency. Before long, all the power had gone out. The winds were howling. And I said, look, not a problem. We'll just wait it out.
And he said, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. If we don't go now, this is the spawning season. I will miss my opportunity, so we have to go. So we got into his car with a skiff on a trailer, driving through the dark and blacked out streets, with the trailer rattling in the howling winds. And we drove and drove, and he began to arrive at a beach, at a shoreline, and he began to launch the skiff as it was getting dark. And I said, it's getting dark. We can't go now. And that's when I apparently learned something else. You always learn something when you do these stories. I learned something else that apparently when you hunt giant squid, you got to go at night because that's when they rise in the water column to feed. So we put the skiff in the water um, and we climbed into the boat uh, at about twilight and we shoved off and O'Shea pointed to a buoy in front of us and he said to me, what color is that? I said, it's green, can't you see it? And I don't have the best eyesight. O'Shea, who had lost his hearing in one ear from a diving accident said, I'm not just deaf, I'm also colorblind. <laughs> now, out in front of us, I could see a channel with these enormous rocks on each side and the whole ocean seemed to be um, funneling through this chute. And O'Shea headed right toward it. I had a flashlight that he had given me, and I could see in front of us a mountain of water, about 20 feet high. And then I turned behind me, and I could see right behind us another mountain of water, about 20 feet high, and our little skiff going like this, back and forth, rolling in these waves, everything flying. And O'Shea said to me, you won't find this in New York, will you, mate? <laughs> now, for the first time, I began to wonder whether my captain was fully in command of all his faculties. But O'Shea somehow managed to steer us between these rocks and he got out his trap, which was built partly from empty plastic Coke bottles, sawed in half. That's another story. Now there were only three of us and O'Shea put me to work. It wasn't exactly my vision of reporting. And we would drop the trap, which weighed about 50 pounds, into the water. And then after about an hour or so, we'd pull it up. And we'd do this over and over again. And this went on futilely all night. And we did this again, night after night, without finding anything. Finally, one time around 4 in the morning, we pulled in the trap. And the graduate student said to O'Shea, I think that's your dream, squid. O'Shea put his eye right against the clear plastic container and said, it looks like Archituthis, the scientific name for a giant squid. And it was just about an inch long, uh, but I could see its big eye, at least I thought I could, and its tentacles behind it. Uh, we had to transfer the baby squid into another container in order to transport it. By then, we were exhausted, our bodies, and even though the cyclone had passed, it was still very rough out. Um, and as we started to pour the contents into the trap from one container into the other container, the baby squid seemed to disappear. It's gone, O'Shea said. It's gone. And he fell back into his chair with a look of despair on his face like I had never seen on a person before. And you know what I was thinking in that moment? I must confess. I'm dead. I am dead. 
I persuaded my editors to fly me out to New Zealand. I've been out here for weeks on end. And what? We had the baby? I think we had the baby. And then we lost the baby? I thought, there is absolutely no story to tell. And after a few more days of dismal failure, I kept thinking, though, about that moment. And it dawned on me, at last, that not only was that a story, the story, it was a story that was far more interesting than the fairy tale I had concocted in my mind about us growing some creature in captivity. This was ultimately a story about a man who had dedicated his whole life to trying to capture this creature. And then when he finally had it within his grasp, it had slipped away. It was the failure, the doomed nature of the quest that had revealed something so much more profound and moving about the human condition. And yet, for so long, I was completely blind to it. I could not recognize it because I had been blinded by my own preconceptions. And that experience taught me something very fundamental about investigating real stories. You must remain open to the facts. You must let the story guide you to the truth. And that truth, to borrow a line from Sherlock Holmes, is often far more surprising than anything that the human mind could invent. And that lesson stayed with me over the years, which is why I told that kind of funny story. Um, and it would even influence me when I would embark on more serious stories. It would stay with me, for example, when I began um, to research one of the most serious stories I'd ever looked in, uh, one that involved excavating a largely forgotten chapter of American history. In 2012, I was visiting the Osage Nations Museum in Northeast Oklahoma when I stopped at its museum, and I saw this enormous panoramic photograph on the wall. Now, this is just a fragment of the photograph. It went across this, about the length of this wall. And uh, it was taken in 1924. It shows members of the Osage Nation alongside white settlers. It looks pretty innocent, right? When you look at it, that was my first impression of it. But I noticed that a portion of the photograph was missing, and I asked the museum director what had happened to it. And she said, um, Catherine Redcorn, she said uh, it had contained a figure so frightening she had decided to move it. And then she pointed to that missing panel. I'll never forget this. She said, the devil was standing right there. And the book Killers of the Flower Moon grew out of trying to understand who that figure was and the search would lead me to one of the most sinister crimes and worst racial injustices in American history. Now these crimes occurred during the early 20th century when members of the Osage Nation had become millionaires because of oil deposits under their land in Northeast Oklahoma. To tame that oil, prospectors had to pay the Osages for leases and royalties. And initially, this just amounted to a little bit of money. But as more oil was tapped, the amounts grew and grew until the 2,000 or so members of the Osage Nation on the tribal roll received in the year 1923 alone what would be worth today uh, more than $400 million. 
And the public became transfixed with the Osage wealth, which belied these long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans that traced all the way back to the very first brutal contact between white settlers uh, and Native Americans. Um, and white reporters would head out to Osage territory, and with a great deal of racism and sensationalism, they would tell these stories about the quote-unquote plutocratic Osage with their terracotta mansions and their um, um, their servants, many of whom were white. It was said at the time, whereas one America might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. And the process of research is always an ongoing thing. It doesn't even end with a book. And I'm going to show you something that I actually discovered after the book came out. A member uh, of the Osage Nation had found uh, in her basement a, um, uh, an early movie camera footage that her uh, grandfather, I believe it was, took. Because uh, they were wealthy, owned one of the early camera. So you're going to see exactly what Osage territory, what Pahuska and these towns look like. If you saw the film recently, you'll see this footage, which I gave to the production team, was used to help reconstruct what the town looked like. You're going to see it during the boom time of the 1920s. Now, the tangled history of how the Osage had gotten a hold uh, of this oil-rich land went back to the 17th century, when the Osage had laid claim to much of the central part of the country, a territory that stretched from what is now Missouri to Kansas all the way to the edge of the Rockies. President Thomas Jefferson, who met with a delegation of Osage chiefs at the White House in 1804, uh, called the Osage a great nation and promised them that they would know white settlers only as friends and benefactors. But of course, over the next two decades, the Osage were forced to cede more than 100 million acres of their ancestral land. By the 1870s, they were confined to another, uh, to a reservation in Kansas, where once more they were under siege by white settlers. There was a massacre, and under duress, the Osage agreed to sell their lands, and they looked around for a new place to move to. And they eyed a territory in what was then Indian territory, in uh, today that is part of what is now Oklahoma. And it was a large area. It was um, about one and a half million acres, about the size of Delaware. But although the area was vast, it was rocky and infertile, so uh, most uh, white settlers considered it worthless, which is why this Osage chief had stood up at a tribal council meeting and he said our people should move there because our people will be happy there because the white people will finally leave us alone. So they purchased the land, and that's important to understand. Um, they paid uh, 70 cents per acre, and they had a deed to it, and they relocated there. Now, by then, the forced migrations, disease, and the massacres had taken a tremendous toll on the Osage. Their numbers had dwindled just to a few thousand, um, less than a fraction, uh, you know, a fraction of what they had been less than a century earlier. Um, and then, in 1906, uh, just before Oklahoma became a state, the government forced upon the Osage the culmination of its very brutal assimilation campaign, which is called allotment. And under this policy, the Osage reservation would be divvied up into parcels with each tribal member receiving one allotment, while the rest of the area would be opened up 
to white settlers. This was in theory done to turn um, Native Americans into private property owners, uh, but it was done not incidentally to make it much easier if you could end the communal ownership of their land, it'd be much easier for white settlers to procure it. During negotiations, um, with Congress over the terms of allotment. Those sage were led by one of their greatest chiefs at the time, a man who spoke seven languages, including French and Sui and Latin. Um, and they also had a deed to their land, so they had more leverage than a lot of the other uh, First Nations um, who were being allotted. And they uh, managed to slip into the provision what at the time seemed like a very curious provision. It said, we shall maintain all the subsurface mineral rights to our land. Now, nobody at that time thought the Osage were sitting on a fortune of oil. Um, they knew there was a trickle, and the Osage very shrewdly managed to hold on to this last realm of their land, a realm that they could not even see. And each Osage on the tribal roll received a head right which was essentially a share in this mineral trust. Now after allotment, as happened with so many uh, reservations that were broken up and allotted, much of the surface territory disappeared into the hands of whites. But a head right could not be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. So even as the surface territory would disappear into the hands of whites, the Osage continued to maintain control over this uh, area beneath their land about the size of Delaware. They had become the world's first underground reservation. And before long, the oil boom had begun. Some of the largest deposits then ever found in the country were located right in Osage territory. Um, there was such demand to drill there that prospectors, um, including oil barons, so many, so many of the names that are familiar to us today, J.P. Getty, for example, and his family, they first struck oil in Osage territory. Here you could see the Phillip brothers from Conoco and their other executives heading out on their special train to attend one of these auctions to bid on leases. Um, and a lease for about, uh, um, uh, about 160 acre track of land would sell for as much as a million or two million dollars. And the auctions during an ice day were held outdoors under this elm tree, which became known as the million dollar elm. Now, as the Osage property in prosperity increased, it provoked an insidious backlash. The US Congress would hold hearings day after day. You go back, you can dig up their testimony and read it saying, what are we gonna do about the members of the Osage Nation and all their money? And eventually, they went so far as to pass legislation requiring many Osage to have white guardians to manage their fortunes. So, this system was not abstractly racist, it was literally racist, it was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were more than a half-blooded or a full-blooded Osage, you were given one of these guardians, and they would tell you whether you could get this toothpaste or that car. You know, here you could be an Osage chief leading a nation, and they were dictating what you could, how you could spend your money. Um, and the system wasn't only racist, it also ushered in one of the largest sanctioned criminal enterprises, is 
many of the guardians begin to swindle millions and millions of dollars uh, from the Osage. Now, at a congressional hearing, uh, this Osage chief testified, and I think it's important. I want to read to you a passage because often there are voices you don't get to hear from history, but here, because he testified, we get to hear the Osage perspective and this chief's perspective. His name was Bacon Rind. And he said uh, to them, um, the whites had bunched us down in the roughest part of the country, thinking we will drive these Indians down to where there is a big pile of rocks and put them there in that corner. Now that the pile of rocks had turned out to be worth millions of dollars, he added, everybody wants to get in here and get some of that money. And then the Osage began to die under mysterious circumstances. And one family in particular was profoundly impacted, the family of Molly Burkhart. And Molly, who was born in 1886, was really a remarkable woman. She was born in a lodge, uh, speaking Osage, practicing Osage traditions. But uh, in a very short time, when she was just a little girl, the government forced her to attend a Catholic missionary boarding school, so she was forcibly uprooted from her home. She was no longer allowed to speak Osage. She had to catch the white man's tongue, as they referred to it. And then within a couple decades, because of the oil money. She was living in a large house. She had white servants. And she had married her chauffeur, Ernest Burkhart, who she had met. He was a settler who had come from Texas as part of many settlers attracted to the oil boom. And she had met him because he had been her chauffeur, driving her around. And even though he drank and played poker, she thought she detected beneath his rough exterior sensitivity, and she fell in love with him. And they had three children together. And in many ways, Molly straddled not only two centuries, but two civilizations. And one day in 1921, Molly's older sister, Anna Brown, uh, disappeared. And Molly looked everywhere for her. And a week later, she was found in this ravine, shot in the back of the head. And soon after, Molly's mother, who you can see here, Lizzie, began to grow mysteriously sick. Each day, she seemed to grow more insubstantial. And less than two months after Anna had died, uh, Molly's mother also died, and evidence would indicate she had been poisoned. So within the span of two months, Molly had lost her older sister and her mother, who was one of the last kind of tethers to the old way of life. Now Molly had a younger sister named Rita who was terrified by these crimes. She decided to move closer to town um, where she thought it would be safer. And she moved into this house with her husband, and an 18-year-old maid. Um, and then one day, about three in the morning, Molly heard a loud explosion. The force was so strong that it blew some people back on their beds. She got up and she went to the window and she could see a large orange ball rising into the sky. It looked as if the sun had burst violently into the night. Somebody had planted a bomb underneath the house, killing Molly's sister Rita, her husband, and the 18-year-old maid who would leave behind two young children. And it wasn't just Molly's family that was being systematically targeted. So were many other Osage. And so were even some of those who tried to capture the killers. The Osage had sent one man to D.C. to hopefully get federal authorities uh, to investigate. He checked into a boarding house. Um, he received a telegram from Oklahoma that said, be careful. He carried with him a Bible and a pistol. He left the boarding house that evening. He was abducted. And his body was found the next day in a ravine, and he'd been beaten and stabbed to death. And the Washington Post carried a headline that declared what the Osage already knew. It said, conspiracy to kill rich American Indians. Um, 
And Mali and other Osage uh, valiantly crusaded for justice, but because they were Osage, um, because of prejudice, um, their complaints, their calls for justice were ignored. And so Vali eventually uh, turned to this man here for help, uh, William K. Hale. William Hale was the uncle of her husband, Ernest. He had arrived in Osage territory at the turn of the century as a dirt poor farmer, but he had gradually risen to become a cattle baron. Uh, he was a deputy sheriff who campaigned for what he called God-fearing souls. He was the most powerful figure in the region and he was known as the king of the Osage Hills. Um, and he was very close to uh, Molly and her family. He had been a pallbearer uh, at Anna Brown's funeral and he issued rewards for justice, um, live or dead to capture the killers, but all to no avail. And after the death toll had climbed uh, in 1923 to more than 24 Osage, the Tribal Council issued a resolution pleading with federal authorities to step in and investigate. And it was then that the case was taken up by a rather obscure branch of the Justice Department known as the Bureau of Investigation. Of course, we know it today as the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the FBI. And it would become one of their first major homicide cases. And for two years, um, the Bureau's investigation was marred by failure. Um, it was plagued by the same problems that plagued much of law enforcement at that time. Some of the early agents were blinded by prejudice. They had gotten one outlaw out of jail hoping to use him as an informant, and they were supposed to keep him under surveillance, but instead he slipped away, robbed the bank, and killed the police officer. But after two years, the investigation um, was taken over by an agent named Tom White who put together an undercover team. Most interestingly, one of the undercover operatives was an American Indian, and we don't know statistics back then, but given J. Edgar Hoover, the director's prejudices, it's fair to assume it was the only American Indian then on the rolls. And they went on undercover. Um, they posed as cattlemen. Um, they posed as insurance salesmen. And the investigation had many ins and outs and twists and turns. But ultimately, what they did is they followed the money. And in particular, to see who was profiting uh, from the killings in Molly's family. Now, remember, a headright could not be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. So they examined the wills to see where the money was funneling. And the more they examined the wills, the more they realized that the killings were not even haphazard in terms of the order. They seemed to be systematic. And the more they traced the money, it led them to a culprit who Molly not only knew, but whom she thought she had loved and whom she thought had loved her. It led them to her own husband, Ernest, that after East killing, the money was being funneled down so that it would be in the hands of Molly, but Molly did not control her fortune. Ernest did. Not only that, the plan had been orchestrated by William K. Hill, the king of the Osage Hill, the so-called man of God-fearing souls. And one of the things that made these crimes so sinister 
was that they involved an intimate level of betrayal. They involved people marrying into families, marrying into families, pretending to love you, sometimes having children of you, while plotting to kill you, and sometimes even your children. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the search for the truth, um, kind of our theme tonight, and the process of, of, of research. And I decided to tell this story uh, in a way I had never done before, which was from the perspective of three different individuals. Um, and one of the individuals, the most important, was from Molly Burkhardt. And one of the reasons I did that was because Molly's story was almost always left out uh, of the accounts. And even when investigators would interview her, they didn't document much of what she had to say. And so I thought it was really important to try as best as possible to tell some of her story. Um, and one of the documents I found um, was in an archive, and it was a court record, and it was her appealing um, her quote-unquote incompetency. When you were given a guardian, you were deemed incompetent, and you were given a guardian. And I can't remember the exact year now, but I think it was like 1934 or 35, maybe it's 37. She, just a few years before she died of natural causes, and the state finally granted her uh, deemed her competent and granted her access to her fortune. So only then, only then, in the 1930s, was she granted the full-fledged rights of an American uh, citizen. And another part, a key part of the research was also tracking down descendants uh, of both the killers uh, and the victims. And it's important to understand, um, you know, many of them still live in the same neighborhoods today, but it's important to understand that often they lived in the same household, right? Because the, the murderers were marrying into the family. Um, so you could be a descendant who had a murder in your family as well as many victims. Um, and one of the people I tracked down was Margie Burkhart, who was the granddaughter of Molly. Um, and you know, she shared with me oral histories about Molly and really helped me understand her and bring her to life as best as I could. And you know, she took me out to the graveyard where so many of her relatives who were murdered, are buried. And it was talking to Margie that drove home to me how this is still living history. We're not talking about that long ago. We're talking, when I was doing this research, it was less than a century ago. And one of the reasons I then told another perspective was from uh, one of the FBI investigators, Tom White, and then from the president, from my own perspective. And one of the reasons I did this was to try to show how often we only can discern the truth of history, especially during a conspiracy, um, with a multiplicity of perspectives, more than one perspectives, with emergence sometimes of new evidence. And as I researched this story, I came to realize that there was a much deeper and darker conspiracy than the FBI ever exposed. As I talked to many Osage and interviewed them, they began to tell me about other killings in their families that were never um, properly investigated and were not part of the official tally of more than 24 deaths. And then one day, I went out to the archives in Fort Worth, Texas. This is an enormous archive. It's about the size of an airport hangar. It looks like something like where you stash the Covenant in the, the Raiders of the Last Ark. And I was pulling records on guardians. And again, 
research leads to things unexpectedly. Many discoveries in research are not you are looking for something specific and then you find it. It's usually a process of serendipity. And as I was looking through records on guardians, I was trying to confirm a very simple fact about whether a certain Osage had had a certain guardian. And um, in one of the boxes, there was this booklet. It was a little ledger. Uh, it was taken, I can't remember the dates, but the early 1920s. And all it did was show uh, an, a guardian and whose Osage fortunes they had managed. And the only other thing written in this booklet was if one of the Osages had died, they wrote the word dead next to his or her name. And when I opened it up, I noticed under the first, or one of the guardian's names, um, who had about six Osages whose fortunes uh, he had managed, I noticed next to the first name the word dead. And then the next name dead. And the third name dead. And the fourth name dead. And the fifth name dead. And the sixth name dead. All dead. I said, that is so strange. And I began to look through the book. Then I noticed another guardian who had about a dozen Osages whose fortunes they had managed, and it had about a 50% mortality rate, and on and on it went. Now, no doubt that many of these deaths, or some of these deaths, were of natural causes, but it defied any natural death rate. I mean, the Osage were wealthy. They were not hungry. They had access to medicine. They had access to food. And as I looked into some of the cases, I could find in some of them evidence and trails of complaints about a head right being stolen, complaints of the... Of the um, deceased having been murdered or poisoned. And I realized that this little book that seemed so antiseptic contained the hints of a systematic murder campaign. And it was documents like that that completely demolished the original conception of the book I thought I was writing. I spent two years writing one book and ended up writing a different book. The book I thought I was writing was this idea that this was a case of a singular evil figure who had committed these crimes with a few henchmen. But it turned out that this was really about a culture of killing and that there were many other murderers, many of them maybe less flamboyant or spectacular than Hale, but of individuals killing one member of a family to profit. And this was really a story about a culture of complicity, about morticians who were covering up bullet wounds, about doctors who were administering poison, about lawmen who were on the take, and prosecutors, and many others who remained complicit in their silence. And so it, again, it was a reminder that the story you think you may be pursuing may end up to be a different story. And in this case, the truth was both devastating and utterly shocking. Now, on that day when I visited the museum, the museum director went down into the basement and she brought up the image of the missing panel. And there, peering out very creepily from the corner with his chapeau and glasses, was William K. Hill. He uh, was the so-called devil. And I was struck by the fact that the Osage had removed that photograph not to forget what had happened, but because they can't forget. And yet so many people, including myself, had excised it from our conscious. Now after researching Killers of the Flower Moon, I became very interested in the way we tell stories, the way we shape our own stories, but also why certain stories are left out and erased from our collective memory and narrative. And that research led me uh, 
to a place that I never expected. It led me uh, to a small boat uh, off the Chilean coast of Patagonia, entering what is now known as the Gulf of Sorrow, or some prefer to call it the Gulf of Pain. And it was freezing out, and we were caught in a storm with towering waves that dwarfed the boat. And it was like being back on that squid boat, but I swear even worse. In front of us, all I could see was another mountain of water. Behind us, another mountain. The boat had a captain and two crew, and we were being tossed about so violently um, that you did not dare stand, or you might break a limb. And I kept glancing out the porthole, hoping to catch a glimpse of this de desolate place that for so long had consumed my imagination, Wager Island. And it was on that deserted island that had unfolded one of the most extraordinary and gripping sagas I had ever heard of. One that had influenced philosophers like Rousseau and Voltaire, the scientist Charles Darwin, and two of the great novelists of the sea, Herman Melville and Patrick O'Brien. Yet as the boat rolled further and further over, I began to wonder what you're probably all wondering now. What the hell was I doing in the Gulf of Pain? Um, and the story, believe it or not, took place, goes all the way back to 1742. And it was then that the small battered boat had washed ashore off the coast of Brazil. And 30 men were crammed on board, their bodies almost wasted to the bone. Most of them could not even stand. But a figure in charge rose with an extraordinary exertion of will and announced that they were survivors from the wager, a British naval warship. And during the imperial war with Spain, the ship had been sent on an expedition to capture a Spanish galleon that was filled with so much treasure, it was known as the prize of all the oceans. But everything on the voyage had gone wrong. The company had suffered one of the worst outbreaks of scurvy ever recorded, hundreds members of the expedition were tossed over body, tossed over uh, board, their bodies buried at sea. And then they tried to navigate around the seas at Cape Horn, which has some of the most violent seas in the world. Um, and they were caught in what one of them described as the perfect hurricane, with seas dwarfing a hundred foot mast, the bodies rocking, their sails torn. And then eventually the wager had shipwrecked on a desolate island uh, off the coast uh, of Chile. Um, and they had been stranded there. And after building a flimsy craft, the survivors had traversed nearly 3,000 miles, one of the longest castaway voyages ever recorded. They were healed for their extraordinary courage and powers of endurance. But then, six months later, another tinier boat washed ashore this one landing off the coast of Chile. Um, and on board were three additional seamen, including the captain of the wager, who was so delirious, he could not even recollect his own name. And when they eventually recovered, they told a very different story. That the men on the first boat were not actually heroes, they were mutineers. 
And in the controversy that followed, it became clear that while stranded on the island, the wagers officers and crew, those supposed apostles of Western civilization, had descended into a real-life Lord of the Flies with warring factions and abandonments and murder and even cannibalism. One of the things that drew me so much to this story, which connects to what we've been talking about tonight, is that back in England, a few of them managed the few survivors from the expedition um, got back to England and they were summoned to face a court-martial for their alleged crimes on the island. And several of the accused released their widely conflicting accounts of what had happened. Now, Joan Didion famously said, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. But in their case, if they didn't tell a convincing tale, they could be hanged. And so the, after waging this war against the elements, they began to wage a war over the truth. And as they were doing this, the authorities were listening to all these versions of the story and they were starting to wonder, do we like any of these stories? They make the British officers and crew look like brutes, not like gentlemen. And what they were saying undercut the central claim that the British Empire had used to justify its ruthless conquest of other people, that their civilization was somehow superior to others. And so what happens? They suddenly want to tell an alternative history, their own mythic tale of the sea. And so just as people tell stories to serve their self-interest, so do nations and empires. Now, when I began doing research for this, it began in a place suited to my very paltry physical attributes, which was in archives, pulling these 18th century journals. And what was so interesting is I would be reading one of these crumbling manuscripts, and they would be discussing about misinformation and disinformation, and allegations that there were fake journals being written to sway the admiralty. And then I would come home, and what would I hear? Alternative facts, fake news. Then I go back to the archives and I'd pull out these old crumbling books that were water stained, dust and healed, and I'd be reading about this battle over history. Who would get to tell the story? Who had the right and which story would prevail? And I would come home and they'd be discussing what could be taught in schools and what books should be taught. Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, many teachers were no longer teaching in Oklahoma because they were afraid. And so I thought in this very strange story from the 18th century, was in a way this perfect parable for our own turbulent times. And one of the reasons I tell this story is not for us to give up on the truth. It is to make us more discerning of it so that we understand who's telling stories and why and that we can sort through misinformation and disinformation in the 18th century or in the 21st century. Go on TikTok. Um, now, just really quick, um, after about two years of researching in the archives, I came up with this very foolish idea, which I often have, which is that you can really only understand a story if you go to the very nth degree. And I thought, well, how can I understand what had happened to these men on the island and these boys unless I went to the island myself? So I found this Chilean captain who sent me a picture of the boat. And it looked really big. And I said, that's fine, good. And he said he would take me. So uh, it took me days to get to the island. I won't even, well, we were going to get, we we're going to leave from Chiloway Island, which is 350 miles north of Wager Island. And when I showed up, I took one look at the boat. And I was like, ah, that's not quite the boat I imagined. 
Um, it was literally heated by wood. Um, we would get our water from streams, from islands. It was so rough we couldn't even set off for five days because the Coast Guard had closed, blockaded the port and said nobody could come in or out. Um, but eventually we got out and we slipped into these, uh, uh, the channels uh, along the coast. It's kind of a fractured coast. And if you stay in the channels, it's actually very chillingly beautiful and calm because you're sheltered from the Pacific. Um, and we would stop at islands to chop wood to heat the boat and um, get water for our stream. The coldest shower I ever took, 10 seconds, kept me awake. Um, and after about uh, five days of this, the captain said, well, now if we're going to get to Wager Island in the Gulf of Pain, we're going to have to head out into the ocean. And that's when I got that first glimpse of the sea, which I had recorded for you. Um, and it was so rough that, as I said, I had to just sit on the floor. And now I'm not the brightest bulb. And I was like, how am I going to You couldn't eat. You couldn't do anything. You just had to sit there for 10 hours. And I was like, how am I going to pass time? Well, your bright, adventurous explorer had a recording of Moby Dick on his iPhone. He thought, well, why don't I listen to that? <laughs> now, let me just tell you, I kind of think it's probably the greatest American novel ever written, the worst book to listen to in a storm when you are ready to throw up. Um, in any case, our captain was very skilled. He did manage to lead us across uh, the Gulf of Pain. It's a long story, and I won't get all into it, but I do hope you'll read the book and, and learn more about it. But, um, and eventually, uh, we got uh, to Wager Island. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to do that was to try to understand what it was like. And so, for example, they kept describing in their old journals how cold it was. And I thought, well, how cold could it be? It looked like it was about 32 degrees when I looked up the temperature when I was in New York there. But when you get there, you realize it's always blowing about 30 miles an hour. It's always raining or sleeting. And so they were freezing. They were clearly, they only had shreds of clothing. I was all bundled up, as you can see in this photograph. And yet I was still really cold. And they discussed about having no food. And I thought, well, really, no food on the island? And sure enough, there is virtually no food on this island. It is completely desolate. Uh, it is rocky. It is barren. There were some mussels along the shore. The castaways quickly exhausted their supply. There was some bits of celery, as you could see in this picture, in which I tasted that the explorers had found, the castaways had found. It had one benefit, which it actually cured their scurvy, though back then they had no idea why, but it had vitamin C, so it did cure their scurvy, but it was not enough to keep them alive. And there were a few birds just kind of flying about that they couldn't reach and I couldn't reach. Um, and going to that island, even with my little sandwich that I'll tell you I brought with me, um, <laughs> drove home to me why I could finally understand after this trip uh, why this British officer had described the island as a place where the soul of man dies in him. Now, at one point as I was looking on the island, um, uh, our captain pointed to a uh, uh, a little stream kind of off the coast, a little bit inland, um, and he pointed, he said, look over there. And we looked down, and there were some planks, some timber, bound together with wooden pegs. Um, they were from the 18th century, and they were remnants of an 18th century warship believed to be his Majesty's ship, the Wager. And we knew what they were because an expedition had discovered them about a decade earlier. And after, you know, I spent, I spent five years working on this project, documenting warring stories, warring words, 
battles over the truth, ferocious battles over the truth, ferocious battles over history. But for a moment, this was all that was left. This was all that remained, the only remnants of those ferocious dreams of empire. And for once in that moment, the only sound I could hear was the sweet, eternal hush of the sea. Thank you. Thank you. That was really cool. <laughs> How you doing? I'm okay. You I'm did ready. great. Good. Feeling great. We survived. <laughs> yeah. The good thing about the good thing about writing the book Wager Island is, you know, you can get up in front of all you people, and no matter however challenging or nervous I am, my life is infinitely better than having been on the wager ship. <laughs> you thought that ice storm was bad? Try Wager Island. Um, on the wager still, I noticed this too, and we had a couple questions where sure. you actually credit our own Oregon Historical Society. Yes. In yes. the book, and I was curious what role they might have played. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's what's so great about the treasure hunt from archives. I mean, you really, I mean, I, I must confess that the last place I ever expected to find records for the expedition of the wager was in Oregon, of all places. But yes, they had letters. Uh, one of the ships um, um, that uh, made it back to England, there were several ships in the original expedition. And um, somebody who had met them in China had written letters um, about that encounter and what it was like when they visited China. And they were in the or Oregon Historical Society. And it was interesting because they offered a different perspective um, than a lot of the official accounts. So they were actually quite useful. Awesome. We're, gl we're glad we could help. <laughs> Um, someone also asked a question, which I thought was, I feel like they have an ulterior motive here, um, but they want to know what happened to the treasure. <laughs> ah, to the treasure. Yeah. All right. Well, you got to go get that. Uh, you got to get one of those people who has one of those ships and then go look. For no, um, you know, stories have these incredible twists and turns that, that, you know, going back to that quote I gave from Sherlock Holmes, where the truth is often stranger than anything that the mind could invent. Well, incredible. Incredibly, you know, you, when you read the book, you'll, you'll read about endless suffering and, and all these things they went through. There were originally five warships in the expedition, and they all get destroyed and separated and turned back. One gets burned, the wager gets shipwrecked. But incredibly, out of nowhere, one of the ships, um, the Centurion, which was the flagship of the expedition, survives, and it actually makes it off the coast of Philippines, and it intercepts the treasure ship, and it captures it. And this was really important, one, because it provided uh, you know, this triumphant moment to this disastrous expedition. But when I talked about it, I didn't get into it because of time, but you know, when the, one of the reasons the empire and the authorities wanted to rewrite the history is that the war that was being fought had been a total disaster in general, not just this expedition. But here they finally had this triumphant success. They had captured the galleon. Even with all the treasure, which was worth a ton of money, it was a fraction of the money that the war had cost and the lives that had been lost. And yet it was a triumphant tale. And that was the story that the empire wanted 
to tell. It's a good story. You should read it. Um, we have a question. This is specifically about the wager, and I want to expand it a little bit to kind of everything, which is what characters on the wager made you want to write the book? And I feel like there are charismatic characters, for better or worse, in many of your stories, and I'm curious when you typically meet them in your research and yeah. how you know you're like, oh, that's the guy. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because because of time, I limited some of the discussion on the wager. So um, the wager also, it was a kind of this war over stories and people are deceased by centuries. So I am trapped, I am imprisoned by their narratives that I can find. I can't interrogate them. I can't interview other witnesses. So I thought to myself, how am I gonna tell this story? Because who's telling the truth? <laughs> and they, their, their accounts differ. And so I thought, well, the only way to do this was to actually tell it from three competing points of view. And to let the account shift back and forth so you could see how each of them is shaping their own story to try to emerge as the hero. And I chose three people, partly because they left behind records, but they were also the most logical people to write from. One was the captain, Captain Chief. He was somebody who back on land was always kind of struggling and plagued by deaths, and yet he found refuge on a warship at sea and he had finally attained what he had always longed for on this expedition. He had become the captain of his own warship, of the wager. He also had the most Dickensian name, David Cheap. <laughs> and then um, uh, the next point of view I chose was uh, the gunner. And the gunner was a really interesting figure um, because uh, he was in many ways the most skilled seaman on the wager. Uh, but because he didn't come from the upper class, he knew he could never arise to become a captain. Uh, but he was a very uh, talented writer. And when he was on the island, suddenly in that democracy of suffering, there is a class struggle. And he could he suddenly in those conditions emerge as a captain in his own right. So there was this battle over leadership. And then the third point of view, I told from the point of view of the 16-year-old midshipman. And I first came across the story through his account. Uh, his name was John Byron. If the name is familiar, it's because he would later go on to become the grandfather of the poet, Lord Byron, whose poetry is greatly influenced by what he referred to in Don Juan as my granddad's narrative. And he said something, if I can remember, he had no... He had no rest at sea, nor I on shore. Or he said, our, our fates reversed. He had no rest at sea, nor I on shore. Um, and he, in many ways, serves as our eyes and ears because he's just a boy coming of age amid all this mayhem. Thank you. And you are sometimes a character in these books. You do, like you talked about a little bit with Killers, like talk about your experience of writing the book. It's, I think, much more prominent in Lost City of Z in a lot of ways. How do you decide that yeah. balance and kind of what yeah. role you're gonna play? Yeah, it's a great question. I am not a memoirist. Um, in fact, never wanna really write about myself or my personal self. Um, and um, I let the stories really determine uh, whether I am in them. I always try to let the story itself determine both the shape of the story, who will tell it, and, and figure out how it should be told that serves the themes and the structure of the story. So for Lost City of Z, it was a book about obsession, and um, I wanted to show how um, exploration had changed in the 21st century versus uh, the 
Victorian and Edwardian period. Um, and so it was kind of essential to kind of show these two stories back and forth, and then to show also these later modern day discoveries in the Amazon. So it kind of had to be a, a, a vehicle to get you there and get you on this journey. For Killers of the Flower Moon, I did not want to be in that book at all. And I'm only in the third part of the book, really essentially as a cipher, which is just an eyewitness, so that you as the reader can learn what is being discovered now and to see what had happened to those age nations today, to see that the, even as a lawyer told me, they were victims of these crimes, they don't live as victims, but to most importantly be able to present to you um, how that history still reverberates to this day, but the new evidence that helps show and undercut this, what had long been believed, you know, this case of William K. Hale and just a few henchmen. Um, and for the wager, I told you about my journey, uh, that's not in the book. Um, it's not in the book because I didn't feel like it added. I made that decision late, um, and, but it informed my description, but I didn't feel that my story was gonna add to all the other competing stories. It would take away. It wasn't important. My journey was only important towards my research in understanding their stories. If that does that make any sense? That does, thank yeah. you. And then, as we mentioned in the intro, and as you mentioned, a lot of your work has been adapted into film um, or other visual formats. And there's a few questions about what involvement you had in that and kind of what, proce what that process has been like for you. And also, did you like the movie? <laughs> um, so I am um, um, uh, not a filmmaker. Um, and uh, you know, I've known writers who've done this and then they get kind of interested in that world. They want to write scripts. I've never been interested in writing scripts. People have asked me and I don't. I spend so much time on these projects. They fully consume me and take my time. And so when a work is getting adapted, um, the thing that is most important to me is to get it into the hands of people who know what they're doing um, and who share a similar fierce commitment to the story. Because the truth is when you turn over a project, even if you are involved, you lose control of it. Um, you don't, you know, I dictate every word on the page um, and the structure, um, you know, obviously with the editor's inputs, but I am the author of the book, for better or for worse. And uh, a movie is gonna be its own thing, and it's a different medium. Um, and so again, the key is to get it into people who know what they're doing, who share that commitment. Obviously with something like Killers of the Flower Moon, your nervousness is heightened because it's a very serious story. It's not a lark. Uh, they adopted a short a story of mine called The Old Man and the Gun with Robert Redford. It's a, a, a lark of a, of wonderfully, a wonderful movie, um, but it didn't have the same kind of, you know, you're not dealing with a, a, a racial injustice. And so, um, but very early on, I was very comforted when, um, you know, Obviously, Martin Scorsese knows how to shoot a movie. And I'm not going to say, you know, I, I really don't like that tracking shot, sir. I think I would. Um, uh, but not only that, they really cared about getting it right and, and being judicious. And, and, and the only thing I really cared about in that project was that they work closely with the Osage Nation. You know, I spent five years working on the book. Um, and it was a work that was a product of interviews with Osage elders and their cooperation and help. I couldn't have told the story without them and they shaped the story and helped me figure out what the truth was. Um, and I thought that was really important with the filmmakers and that Captain Chief, uh, Captain, uh, Chief Jeff's, Jeffrey Standing Bear, the Osage Chief, uh, early on appointed ambassadors to work with the movie. 
um, and they were completely committed to working with the nation. Um, and the Osage were involved at every level of production, uh, from the sets to the costume, to the use of the Osage language, to uh, speaking roles. Uh, if you look at the tribal council meeting in the film, those are my, many of my friends <laughs> who were, one's a lawyer who's now an actor, um, and they were terrific. Um, and, um, and for me, the, you know, you know, there's always that thrill because for two days my kids will think I'm cool. Um, <laughs> and I get to go to the set and hang out. But, um, but for me, the most important thing with all these stories is I really care about them and I want them to radiate out into the world and a film can really do that. And so that's been the best part is it radiates out there. Thank you. Yeah. So you, it sounds like you do have some ongoing relationships with some of the people you've met through your research. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, over the years, I've done stories where, my God, I hope I never see you again. I mean, I did a story about the Aryan Brotherhood and got death threats, and uh, boy, I hope I never see them anywhere. Um, uh, I'll just tell you a funny story about death threats. I learned that my, the, 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 the gang had a name, they had their own lingo, and when you were marked for assassination, um, you, it was said your name was put in the hat. And I was told after the story came out from some of my informants that my name had been put in the hat. So I called the prosecutor, I've been working on some of the cases, you know, with this very nervousness, saying, you know, I, 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 I hear my name's in the hat. And he said, look, David, it's a very big hat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the hat. Joey's selling hot dogs down the street, he's in the hat. He said, By the you got nothing to worry about. You're so low down in that hat, you got nothing to worry about. So in that case, um, sorry, that was a digression. You don't want to say it. But, you know, for me, the, you know, one of the people always say, what is most rewarding for you about books? And each book has its own experiences. But for me, the most rewarding thing, for example, Killers of the Flower Moon was, you know, these are French. I spent five years working on that book. And I would spend a lot of time living in the community. And, you know, I have now lifelong friends. I mean, I am generally really close. I still go back regularly. I'm going to the dances again this year. Um, and that's just that's, that's great. And that's like, that's the, that's, you know, you could complain about the challenges of writing, but that's one of the great privileges. You get to go places and meet people you otherwise never would. I mean, I was a New Yorker who had never seen a prairie until I'd done that story. You talked a bit, I mean, you talked about in that answer, some of the really, you write about a lot of really dark and... I'm a really happy person. Yeah. How are you so happy? That's I write about really bad things. It doesn't seem so bad. Yeah. <laughs> This is better. <laughs> At least I don't have scurvy. <laughs> yeah, don't get scurvy. Take your vitamin C. Like, if there's one lesson you come from the wager, just bring limes with you on your trip. It's everywhere. Make it a margarita, preferably with a little lime, but bring that, you'll be good. Solves multiple problems. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you cope with the anger that you must feel, though, when you discover, like, these new sinister layers to some of these stories and some of the, you're really talking about these really big, seemingly insurmountable problems, like the evils of empire and racism and things like that. Yeah. Um, Other than margaritas, like what do you do? Yeah. You know, I am in many ways an idealist. Um, I think a lot of writers are and journalists are. And then I'm always disappointed in what people do and that, you know, that the capacity um, but then I'm also always struck by some of the goodness, even when I'm working on some of the awful stories. Um, 
you know, I guess you, you, I mean, one, you're not going through it, and I think there's a huge difference. You know, when I'm interviewing uh, an Osage descendant whose family has been traumatized, I'm recording their story, but I am not enduring the trauma. I am documenting it. I feel a certain moral burden, I should say, just to get it right. Do not mess this up. Do not mess this up. Um, and that's what you feel, because you feel the weight of wanting to record these stories. But the, the strain of idealism that comes from covering these stories is the belief that we can learn. And I don't lose that belief. And I think that's why I write stories. It's both to kind of make sense of the world, the badness, because that is part of the world. That is part of human nature, also the goodness. But I still cling to that, you know, sometimes it's not always easy. Um, to that belief that we are capable of better angels and improvement if we are willing to learn and listen. Um, and so I think that is what kind of helps you transcend it, and it's why you are doing it. Thank you. And thank you for doing yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever been tempted to investigate a story in a more inviting location? In an Oregon location? <laughs> in a more inviting location. Well, say, wait, say, well, a more inviting well, location. Well, my family keeps, I mean, <laughs> boy, I'll tell you, they keep saying, what's, I mean, Hawaii? Why haven't, and my parents, you know, then they're like, what about south of France? There's got to be something happening in the south of France. <laughs> Sinister wine yeah, maker. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't quite know why. I mean, it's not on purpose that I end up on Wager Island. I, I really, or humping through the Amazon. I don't know. I don't know. I, I will say, though, I think there, to some extent, you know, geography is an important factor in a lot of the stories I write about. And I think I am, you know, certain conditions reveal human nature. You know, if you were studying me sitting in my office, it'd be an incredibly boring experience. Um, you know, nothing is happening. I'm just kind of looking at documents and eating too much sugar. Um, but when you place people under geographical strain or on a ship or on tight quarters, you put pack people together, um, often under those conditions, it becomes like a laboratory. And so I think partly that's why I end up writing about these places. It's not so much that I want to go there, but I do think it is something about that those stories and places tend not just by accident to have revealed something uh, that I think we could learn from. Thank you. And for our last question, we like to ask this, because as you heard, we have a bunch of high schoolers in the room, and we heard from a high schooler from our community to open the show today, Perry. Um, I think we'll all remember her name. Do you have any advice for the young and the older writers in the room that you would want to share about writing or about anything, really? Yeah. Well, you know, I think if you are curious and want to learn and you like to listen, I mean, writing is, a, is, a, is actually, it's very taxing. But for me, at least, I can speak for myself, it's always been a way to make sense of a very bewildering world. You're trying to explain it, and the same why I read, and probably, you know, people who can kind of render life through images and make sense of it, organize a story with some structure, you're kind of taking the chaos of life and making it manageable, 
and then imp hopefully imparting something from it. I will say that there is not a great mystery to writing. I think, I mean, there are certain people who have such unbelievably natural gifts, but ultimately writing is um, a profession, or even if you're doing it on the side and it's a hobby, it is a practice like anything else that you learn by doing. And I always say the secret of writing is so prosaic. It's just sitting down to do it. You know, too much of my early life was spent talking about at cocktail parties about stories I was going to write that I never wrote. And now I have a new policy that I'll never talk at a cocktail party about a story that I may want to write because I know I'll never write it. You, you just kind of uh, have to do it. Um, but I... You know, I think, you know, I think we live in a very dizzying time where we are inundated with bits of data and fragmented images, bits of information that's not always verified. And we live almost it's like living in a, in a fog, a density of fog. And so I encourage people to write to hopefully help us see through that and to get to the truth, whether it's a fictional truth, in the, if someone's writing a fiction, whether it was like Perry, that beautiful poem that was so inspiring and spoke about hope. I think words have that power. And again, that's probably the idealist in me still. Thank you for your words, and thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. That was David Gran, author of Killers of the Flower Moon and The Wager, speaking to a live audience at Portland Arts and Lectures at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in downtown Portland, Oregon, on January 25th, 2024. For more information about Portland Arts and Lectures, please visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project, it's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and Crystal Ligori and support from Liz Olofsson. Our intern is Ada Halstrom. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.